and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals. I hope you're enjoying party season and also that you're taking care of yourselves during this final month of 2019. To give you a little sense of what to expect from Best Girl Grip over the festive season, there will be two more episodes after this one, one of which will be a Christmas special going out on Christmas Eve, and then I will be back around mid-January. My guest this week is Rebecca Day, a documentary producer and psychotherapist who began her filmmaking career working for the Scottish Documentary Institute. She has produced the immersive essay film Becoming Animal, which uses cinema's sensory tools to explore humanity's relationship with the natural environment, and is currently producing Silent Men, a personal feature doc about men's mental health. Alongside that, Rebecca currently offers therapeutic support to filmmakers through her business venture, Film in Mind. I particularly love this interview because we explore the ways in which filmmaking can be quite emotionally strenuous, and also why this isn't talked about enough. But equally because Rebecca's career is quite unique and is testament to the fact that you can do creatively fulfilling and vital work in the film industry away from what might be considered the mainstream. The whole point of this podcast is to discover the wealth of different jobs you can do with an interest in film. And I think Rebecca is a brilliant example of someone who has taken that interest in a really unusual but necessary direction. Uh, also to mention, this podcast was recorded uh, on a Skype-esque online platform, so the sound quality isn't as sparkling as usual, if it ever is. Uh, but I will say that it's important to me to canvas a broad range of perspectives and not always host these interviews in London, uh, because although that's obviously a key destination for the film industry, there is a lot of talent and creativity that exists in the regions outside of it, and I think it would be remiss of me to neglect that so I've always chosen to opt for variety rather than perfection. So do forgive any sound niggles, and I hope you enjoy the content of the interview all the same. So here we go. This is episode 38 of Best Girl Grip. with the relative beginning of your career and talk about where you went to university, if you did, and what you studied. did go to university. I went to Stirling Uni and studied film and media, which was not a particularly um, practical course. It was a lot of theory. But it did, I mean, it definitely did lead me directly to producing just through one chance conversation that I remember really clearly. And what was that chance conversation? Yeah, we had one practical uh, module in the whole four years. I was uh, <laughs> organising people in the edit room for this for this short film that we made, and the, my tutor said, um, "You're quite good at that. You're quite organised, aren't you? You've got quite an organised mind." And he mentioned producing, and it was my third year of uni, and I was like, "Oh, what's a producer?" Didn't actually know what a producer did. Yeah. They didn't really. Did you know where to start looking into that? Like when you when you decided that I might be good at that, then where do you go? Well, yeah, exactly. And I, I you know, I, I didn't I didn't have any contacts in the industry at all. I don't I don't have any you know, family members or friends that were working in the industry. So my tutor actually put me forward for some work experience at uh, Scottish Screen at the time. So um, yeah, I did my first work placement when I was in third year of uni there. And it just kind of, it just gave me that foot in to 
to have a few, you know, to have contact. And then my work experience came from that when I left uni. So it was just picking up like little bits of running work and, and um, volunteering on people, other people's short films. And um, it took, took me a long time. Yeah, it was, you know, I worked in a bank for a few years. Right, okay. and went, just did little bits of experience when I could and, and, then, um, and then found the Scottish Documentary Institute. And did the experience feel like it was lead, leading somewhere? It did. I mean, it made me realise, I think, that I wasn't um, that into fiction. As right. in, I didn't... That sort of world of working in fiction felt really different to the documentary work experience that I'd had. And I also remember doing a bit of running with the BBC and working on... Um, it was some kind of it was some kind of chat show, mm. and I was research topics, you know, just like sort of that just didn't really map, didn't really fit with me, and um, so it was just it helped me to figure out what I didn't want to do, um, which was really helpful. Yeah, definitely. So you know, knowing that maybe that world of TV wasn't quite the right thing either. Um, I wanted to it was much more interested, much connected, much more with the independent sector. So. Mm. And in a way that makes it just as valuable, kind of, I think people can tend to get it into their heads that maybe they've wasted time if they're doing something that then doesn't directly translate to what they do later, but it's just as valuable to know what you don't want to do in the part of figuring figuring that out. Um, yeah. So let's, let's talk about, yes, Scottish Documentary Institute and, and what you were doing there. Well, I mean, they have really shaped my career. You know, I, I went, I started with them first in 2008 um, so you know, a long time ago, and I came in just as a as a, um, a sort of assistant, and I was just doing all the festival submissions for their short film scheme, Bridging the Gap, which is still running. Um, so I started off just doing festival submissions, and then working my way up from there, and you know, doing production assistant stuff, and and, and then production management. So you sort of work your way up the roles, and but really playing quite an active role, I guess, in in organising a lot of their well, helping to organise a lot of their training, the training stuff that they did. So really getting to know filmmakers, the industry, what all the names meant, who all the people were, and, and just really learning how far you could push the boundaries of documentaries. That creative education in creative filmmaking was invaluable. Um, and then I went off for a couple of years and worked with Bungalow Town um, in Suffolk with Rachel Wexler, She's an amazing producer who was who was um, finishing off five feature films when I started. Wow! Her. So, yeah, yeah, so that was you know that was a big a big sort of step up in, in quite a lot of production management and distribution. I learned a lot about distribution mm-hmm. at that stage um, on features, and then I went back and then I came back to Scotland and back to the Scottish Documentary Institute and sort of was able to then move more into the into the feature documentary side of stuff. And so, so yeah. you were producing while you were at SDI as well? Yeah. yeah. So are they quite good with that sort of flexible working or are you producing under the SDI banner? Yeah, producing under the SDI banner. Okay. Yeah, and you know, fully supported by... I ended up having a really nice balance with Sonia Henrici, who runs the institute with Noe, um, where she would exec produce or she would be mentoring me through... The, films that I was producing and then I was her production manager on the films that she was producing. Right. So we really supported each other in that and um, she's been she's just been amazing an amazing mentor for me for my career. So. Do you find having that 
that supportive environment like vital in what you do? You know, it was such an amazing company for being able to be giving me a, a job for a start, you know, that was like mm. full time and, and secure. And, and then for also just encouraging you to just experiment a bit and try things and and work on different projects and getting get to go off to film festivals and, you know, just meeting as many people as possible and just doing lots of different things because SDI does a lot of infrastructure stuff as well. It's not it's not just a production company, you know, it's it's sort of it's sort of challenging the documentary scene and pushing it forward and, and you know, we developed a lot of strategies on outreach and distribution and always trying to come up with new ideas of of how to make yeah, just how to sort of push push documentaries into more more um, just to get more eyes on them, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's like connecting the dots across the value chain, isn't it? Because it, it yeah. they, they start at training and, as you say, move all the way through to kind of distribution and impact distribution. So they're really nurturing filmmakers from yeah. from, grad, from graduating all the way and, and sort of through to the end of their first feature. And I guess as a as an employee of theirs as well, I felt like I had exactly the same nurturing. Mm. And what was your first credit as a producer? Well, my first—it's kind of interesting. Uh, my first feature film that I started producing was was actually Speed Sisters, mm-hmm. um, which was released a few years ago on Netflix, and it's done really well. But I ended up with an associate producer credit on that film, so I was there for the first two years of development, and then the film ended up um, being finished in the Middle East with a producer over there and and another producer from America. It was just the right thing for the project at the time in terms of where the funding was coming from and the the team that were attached. But um, that feels like that was my first major, major project. Mm. Um, It was an an incredible thing to work on and I'm so pleased, I'm just so delighted with the final film. And then, um, but my first producer credit for a feature film was, was Becoming Animal, which came out last year. And was that a baptism by fire? Did you feel like, or did you feel like you'd kind of gathered all the, the tools that you needed to go off and do that, you know, feeling quite confident in your ability to produce? Yeah, I felt a lot more confident by that point. It was a co-production with Switzerland. It was a big project, so quite complex financing structure. And I was working with a really experienced um, co-producer in Switzerland um, and two really experienced directors as well. I mean, Emma Davey and, and Peter Mettler have been making incredible films for years so you know it was um it was I felt like I had a really strong team around me I think all the experience in the previous years running up to that I had worked on a lot of features on in various forms um running up to that and it really helped can we talk about the co-production element were you the lead producer and you brought the material to to Switzerland how did that work Yes, I developed the film with Emma and Peter for two years and then we, we brought in the Swiss co-producers. Um, financing for that project in the UK just wasn't really possible to find. Mm. Switzerland, are they have a lot more financing for these kind of really artistic documentaries, I guess, that the UK is not so... They don't take so many risks. Right. I mean, we had amazing support from Creative Scotland, but in terms of finding the rest of the money, we really needed Switzerland. So at that point, when they came on board, they became the lead producers. Mm. And that really, you know, because they're putting in sort of majority of the finance. So that was all really new stuff for me, dealing with, you know, budgets like that. Coming back to, you just said you were developing it for, for two years with Emma and Peter. Um, and so 
a what does that even look like you know what are you doing across those two years and then and then secondly how do you stay motivated because that's kind of your baby and you've obviously seen something in the material that you want to get made but two years is quite a long time to be like is it going to get made and you know on a day-to-day basis how are you yeah how are you staying focused on that project yeah I mean that that is that's that's a question we come up against with every single film that you produce you know and I think you always start at the beginning of the process thinking yes we can get this done by the end of next year this is this is going to be an easy one it's mm. going to be really fast and it's not you know they never are and often it's the financing that holds it back mm. so when you're waiting for the next pot of money to come in that's when you spend a lot of time doing all the creative development so with Becoming Animal there was a huge amount of creative development of just figuring out how to make that film work um, it was a really different a different style of documentary you know and and um, we we did a lot of work on just sort of yeah, figure, figuring it all out, where to film it, what to include, what not to include, how to work with our main contributor, but also that funding structure, we looked at many different models of, you know, should we, because Peter also has Canadian citizenship, so like, should we, we can get funding from Canada, You're sort of looking at the different countries that could potentially be involved and, mm-hmm. and figuring out where to get the money from and what's the best fit for the film but also for the people involved in the film because you want to really enjoy you know your working with your collaborators um, and we really felt that Cornelia from um, Switzerland from Maximage was was the right fit when that came about so it's a lot of strategizing and waiting there is a lot you know you you wait you put in a funding application you wait a couple of months for the decision and then you know it's either a positive or a negative often a negative and then you have to think okay where are we going to go from here what's the next step so I was really lucky because I was you know I was doing that through the Scottish Documentary Institute so I had lots of other things to be doing and a reliable income at the time but I actually went freelance before that film was finished right yeah I moved down to the Lake District right sort of half, halfway through the project so what inspired that decision uh, personal life, yeah, yeah. I met my partner. I met my partner, and he lived down here, and I was kind of ready for change, and it, it was where I wanted to be. So I'm really interested in the fact that you operate out of the Lake District because it feels quite rare. I think everyone congregates in a city or where kind of things are happening in the film industry, be it you know a festival or like with um, mm. Scottish Documentary Institute in Edinburgh. How's that been for you? Do you kind of do you like being sort of away from the, the, the hubbub? I didn't, I didn't, at the time, I didn't feel the need to get out of the city, but I, I absolutely love it. I love the connectedness, connectedness you get with the small community. You know, I sort of, in terms of my personal life, I have a lot more, you know, just knowing your neighbours and mm. switching off from work feels a lot easier. But obviously it has its downsides and accessibility. In some ways, it's, it could open up doors because people want to support filmmakers and producers outside of the central belt. Mm-hmm. So that's not a bad thing. But um, but yes, it also means that it's much harder and it costs me £100 every time I want to go to London. Right. It's actually more expensive to travel to London from here than it was from Edinburgh. Wow. Yeah. And that, but that sort of thing makes quite a big difference. But I think because I moved down so like ten years into my career, mm-hmm. I had enough established 
relationships that it didn't feel too isolating. And before we we talk about your kind of other project, Film in Mind, let's come back to Becoming Animal and and talk about finishing that off and then releasing that into the world and what that experience was like for you. Did it meet expectations? And how do you define success, especially with a documentary? They're not often commercial successes, but did it it feel like a success to you in terms of who saw it and what they said about it? Yeah, it, I mean, yes, it, it does feel like it's been a success. We we always knew it was going to be a tricky film. It was never going to be a TV documentary, mm. and we knew that when we when we took it on. And I love, I mean, I love those films. That's what we want. That's that's why we make documentaries for cinema. You know, it's where they should be seen, and um, it's just unfortunately TV is well was in the past the most reliable place for us to get our funding from. But it, you know, we we knew when we went when we went down the path with. With becoming animal, that it was going to be a strong festival film, and we were kind of hoping that it would take on the sort of cult following, you know, with the the sort of environmental movement, and that, and I think it's quite it's quite it's timely, but it's also timeless. So it, its life is still going. We had a we had our um, premiere at CPH Docs where we pitched it, premiered it in twenty eighteen, and we pitched it there in twenty fifteen. So that was a really nice um, relationship to carried on with the festival. And, um, and then yeah, it's just done the festival circuit, and we've had some cinema screenings in the UK, and it's been screening in Switzerland and Germany, and we have an educational distributor in America. Um, so it's doing well. It's it's not an easy uh, money maker for distributors because they can't sell it to television. Yeah. So that's been. I think it's partly the film, and it's also partly the climate. They're just taking less risks now. Yeah. Distributors generally and and broadcasters so and you know if you when you're ta- starting a project you sort of balance it with risk factor you know yeah. like high risk projects but I'm really pleased with it we're just we're just um we're just pushing now for community screenings so really opening it up to um for, for educational and, and community screenings now so whether that's through small film clubs or organizations that are really connected to David Abrams, the the main contributor in the film to his ideas and environmental groups that might want to use it. And speaking of that landscape where it's it's quite fragmented and it's quite risk adverse, has that forced you to become more creative? How's that impacted your your abilities or your capabilities as a producer? In terms of choosing which projects to take? Choosing which projects and whether you have to be a bit kind of more... Yeah, creative with your financing. Have, have you kind of felt that? Has that had a ripple effect on how you conduct your business? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I don't take on very many projects, and even less, obviously, less now because I've, I've got this new venture happening. But I think at the beginning, as a you know, just a sort of general comment for any producer at the beginning, you need to sit down and be realistic about what you're going to do with the film. So it's not just about where you can get your funding from, but it's also how is this film going to be seen mm-hmm. at the end. And you know, if you can't if you can't give it to a distributor, then ultimately you're going to end up doing that work yourself. And you need to think about what commitment you know you can give to it. So that's another two or three years of your of your working life, you know, tapped on to the end of the film once you finish producing it. And you know, what does what's outreach distribution outreach and distribution look like when you're doing it yourself as a producer because that is not covered in the production budget so where does the money from that for that come from yeah. um 
is always the question. So yeah, I sit and think about those things from the very, very beginning of the project and try to think realistically about how achievable that is. And let's talk about your new venture. Um, so it's called Film in Mind. Um, what is it and where did the idea come from? I think I can probably take it as far back as when I worked on I Am Breathing at Scottish Documentary Institute, which is a film we made about a young man who went to neuron disease. And we did a really big impact campaign on that film to raise an awareness for the illness. And we screened the film. We did a global screening film around the world. And I was, at that point, um, I was the main point of contact between the film and the, and the MND community, the Mitchell Disease community. And so I was the one that was kind of taking the phone calls and the emails and sort of dealing with the emotional side of things, I guess, mm. um, technical side of things, helping people set up screenings, but being there for them as well if, with things that they needed to talk about. And when, when that was over, felt like something was really missing from my work. It really, it really connect, connected with me in quite a profound way. And I really missed that um, side of things, that form of communication with people, um, I guess, being the support. And that's one of the things I love about producing is when you get to actually support, you know, the people you're working with, not just on a, not just on a practical level, but an emotional level as well. Mm. It's really important for me to be able to do both. So I sort of started looking around at like, what did that mean? You know, how else could I bring that into my work? And then when I knew I was going to go freelance, uh, I, was, I wasn't going to make a living. And I just knew it wasn't possible to make a living just from producing films. So I started thinking about another sort of vocation, I guess, that I could do alongside my producing work. And I, and I arrived at counselling, sort of psychotherapy. So I did my training and it was only when I really started my training that the idea of film in mind came about where I realised, I sort of started seeing this really big synergy between the role of the filmmaker, well, documentary filmmaker and, and the role of the therapist. And I thought, hmm, there's a reason why I've been drawn to this because it's actually really, really similar. We're sort of working in similar spaces, you know, that's that sort of digging away to try and understand human the human condition better and 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 then but i guess with documentary makers we then present that to the world whereas with therapists it's very it's a very private interaction between the therapist and the client but i just lots of questions were coming up for me about why filmmakers weren't um why we weren't talking about how difficult the work was and why we weren't putting things in place to look after ourselves better because i i had witnessed a lot of colleagues and, and myself included, really struggling under the weight of, of making films. Do you think it's because the difficulty of making film is, is normalised and everyone kind of says, well, this is how hard and this is how stressful it has to be. So when you go through the sort of that process, you're like, well, you know, that's just rite of passage. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's normalised in that sense because I don't think it's talked about if it was talked about, then it might be normalised. But it's it's not talked about. It's it's there's this there's this sort of um, feeling that you need to be at your absolute top game all the time. And I think we don't leave very much space for people to turn around and say this is really difficult. I've just had the most awful filming experience, and I need to take some time out to process it. There's no time for that. There's never time for time out or for self care or for 
but for vulnerability really and I and I guess what I learned when I was um going through my therapy training was how positive it is to come forward and say that you're feeling vulnerable like that that takes a lot of strength it takes a lot of strength and courage and it's a really healthy thing to do and for some reason it's not just in the film industry but in many industries we see that as a negative thing and I get a lot of um, pleasure from being with people in that at that time of their lives and being able to facilitate change with them you know um it's it's um it's quite an it's quite an incredible thing and i and i suspect that's what filmmakers are drawn to when they're making documentaries as well you know they're 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 tackling really difficult subjects and they're dealing with people at quite critical times of their lives and that's there's a there's a there's something really beautiful in those moments you know, inevitably, that's what, one of the reasons why we make films. Um, but we, as therapists, we spend a lot of time processing that. And as filmmakers, we don't. And did you find that there was a real appetite for what you were offering? That people were like, why is this not being, you know, on offer before? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the short answer. Yeah. 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 A, few, a few years ago, when I first started thinking about this a few years ago, I did not have the courage to talk about it. You know, I, I thought, mm, I don't know how this is going to go down. You know, I don't want, I don't want people to. I don't know if it's patronising, or I don't know if I'm just missing the mark here. And then, interestingly, you know, as I went through my training, um, I think things have changed. I think mental health in general has become an easier thing to talk about. Obviously, it's, it's, you know, the government is doing enormous pushes to try and improve on mental health and, and, and on many levels. And I just think, in general, it's, it's a more open discussion. Um, and so that is having an impact on the film industry. But I have noticed that whenever I bring it up now, now that I'm established, now that I'm established and I've you know completed my completed my training and I actually have something to offer, I have a lot more confidence in saying this is what I'm doing. And I haven't had anyone turn around and say that's not needed. And how does it operate? Do, do people come to you in person for sessions? Do you offer stuff online? Um, yeah, can you talk a bit about the kind of logistical side of running that business? Yeah, and obviously the in-person stuff is really difficult because mm. of where I live. Um, but even even if I lived in London, I would still only be able to see filmmakers in London. So mm. it's it's very much a, a sort of offering to the international documentary community. So I, a lot of Skype um, well, not like a different web platform, but um, a lot of online discussions. So that's it can either be one-to-one counselling, so just kind of sort of straightforward therapy. Also, I think something really valuable is is a sort of professional supervision. So where a filmmaker can slightly different setup to therapy, um, but a filmmaker can come and look at all aspects of their work with a therapeutic angle. So sort of you know personal angle in mind. It's a, I kind of base that around the um, the relationship that I have with my supervisor as a therapist. So I see a supervisor once a month to talk through to talk through challenges in my with that I'm having with my clients. And it just struck me how useful that would be for filmmakers as well. You know, it's someone impartial that you can speak to. It's not connected to your work. So there's the sort of counselling side and then the supervision side and then the sort of more um, group consultancy side. So that's kind of more project specific where you if you're beginning a difficult project and you just want to do a kind of mental health risk assessment at the beginning 
um, I could just console, come in and console on that. In, in terms of why it's so difficult to talk about, particularly in the film industry, do you have a theory of why that is? Like, from the top of my head, I, like, it can be quite a close circle. And I think if you say that you're finding something difficult, it might be perceived as you're difficult or you're not competent. Or if you complain about someone, you're worried it might get back. Do you kind of have any tools or strategies for how, as a community, we can kind of talk about the industry and its, its cons as well as its pros a bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think all of those things, I just think there's a fear. There's an absolute fear from, especially from freelancers, where where work is not guaranteed. And you're getting work based on your last job and how how you did in that last job and word of mouth. So you don't want to be the person that comes forward and says, uh, I, I suffered from exhaustion from my last project or I was bullied on my last project or, you know, that's that's really difficult sort of stuff to say because you then feel like, well, I'm not going to get hired on, on the next one because maybe that employer would think that I'm resilient enough or I'm not motivated enough or I'm not, you know, um, driven enough to make a success of it. And I just, I think that's where burnout comes from because you just keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you don't process what's happened before and also we're not we're not forming compassion and enough compassionate relationships where there's space for that. Everybody is so everybody is dealing with something, whether it's something that's connected to your work. So you know you you could be struggling with your subject matter or you could be struggling with the people you're working with, but that doesn't even give space for our personal lives. And everybody's going through stuff in their personal lives at some point, you know. Has it changed your approach as a producer going through that therapeutic training? Do you feel like, yeah, you operate and work differently now? Yes, definitely. I find I find it a lot more easy, a lot easier to be authentic, mm-hmm. be honest, to turn around and say that's too much for me. I can't, I can't do that. Um, to to be able to say no is is a really valuable thing, and I can do that a lot more easily now without feeling guilty. That guilt, I think the guilt, there's a lot of guilt attached to a lot of what I was just saying before and, and, I, and, I, and I try not to carry that around with me anymore and, and I think the guilt comes from not being transparent. If you're protecting yourself or you're protecting the people you work with so you can't always be transparent and then you feel guilty about it or defensive, whereas now I don't, I try not to... I try not to communicate with people in that way and, and, and so everything just feels much more out in the open and, it, on, and also it's just helps me be a little bit braver as well about about not working for free on things because I, I, I can't I just can't mm-hmm. nobody can afford to do it but I have a I have a baby now as well so I can't even yeah it's just definitely like a lot of things yeah is that something you know when you kind of started offering up uh, yourself as a therapist did you have to kind of be quite strict about saying, you know, that this is something that I charge for. Because yeah. especially when you're new, like the temptation could kind of maybe to be like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll give you a session for free or no, it sets a precedent. How did you teach yourself to sort of say, yes, this is what I'm worth and I can give advice that is, you know, worth paying money for? Yeah, I mean, it's taken me, if you think I'm, I sort of see this as an extension of my producing career so it doesn't feel like a new business in that sense because I'm working in the same um, the same industry mm. um, 
but it has that means it's taken me 10 years to be able to to say my say what my worth is because as a producer I wasn't very good at that like oh yeah I can yeah I can just about do that project for that amount of money Mm -hmm. and and you know I've I've now learned that I can't do that but I I do a lot a lot of my work I do I'm not paid for so speaking at um speaking at festivals on panels and and um you know all sorts of things writing articles and stuff like that I don't always get paid for them but I see that as really valuable collaborations with the industry and it's and it's obviously it's beneficial for for film in mind as well and so then when it comes to the client work um yeah I do I do need to charge I mean I always talk to people have a free consultation just because we need to see if we can work together it has to be the right relationship Mm. I wouldn't charge people for that. So there is sort of an element of time um, that is given for free, but I um, don't really have a choice now because I've got nursery fees to pay for. <laughs> Could we talk briefly about yeah how, how being a mother has kind of changed your working practice and, and whether you feel supported in, in that as well, to have time off and and what you do, especially when you're you're running your own business and as a producer, you're freelance, so presumably maternity leave for a certain amount of time wasn't an option for you. How did you find that? Um, I've been quite lucky, actually. Well, I launched Film in Mind when I was six months pregnant. So. <laughs> quite an undertaking. <laughs> well, I'm going to go for it. I'm not yeah. going to put this off. And they're, and they're going to grow together. So my child and my business are going to grow together around each other. Obviously, my child takes uh, precedent, but you know, it's like they they they're making space for each other, and that's that's it's really nice. I have a very supportive partner who doesn't work in the film industry. He has a you know a secure job, which really helps for us to have some stability. But I work part time, and I I work you know when she's in nursery, and then I pick things up in the evenings and at the weekends, and. Um, my partner also had four months paternity leave, so mm-hmm. we were really lucky that his work supported that. So I took the first five months off, and I just took her along to meetings. I took her to film festivals, <laughs> and I've learned to listen really well to my sort of gut feeling about something. When something feels stressful, I've learned to say I can't do that, and when something feels really exciting, then I will make it work. And I, I went to Sheffield and Open City, and I've been down to some functions in London, Doc Society um, had a function in London when we got funded for a short film and, and took us down and we took the babies and you know, I'm working with a filmmaking team in Cumbria, Land and Sky and they've got a little one as well and we all went down with the kids and it's, it's great, people are really supportive, the industry is really supportive if you ask. Mm. So I'm going, to, I'm going to it for next month and I'm you know, taking, taking my partner and the baby so yeah. Yeah, like slowly there are changes. Like I know raising films are doing quite a lot to sort of have like crushes or support for women in film at film festivals to be able to bring along their children. So, And something that just occurred to me actually is that um, a trend at the moment is to have intimacy coordinators. Like it's a big topic at lots of kind of industry panels and especially after the Me Too movement. Um, mm-hmm. having having that person on set to sort of talk actors through those choreographed moments of intimacy. And I'm wondering if you think there's value in having the equivalent for for mental health, having a, a coordinator or, or someone on set that can provide support and whether that would ever be something that you would do is to have a physical presence on set to kind of support people in that way. 
Yeah, I think that's really, really valuable. It really is. And I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing with, with um, mental health. I'm not sure that's the, that's the right uh, heading there. But, you know, often it's often things hit us after the fact. So if something happens on set that's traumatic or uncomfortable or anything, it, it doesn't always realise itself until a few days or a few weeks or sometimes a few months down the line. Um, but I, So it's not always possible to pick up everything, but I think having somebody there, yeah, that, that people can go to for just a 10-minute kind of check-in is a really important thing. I remember having a conversation recently I did a panel with um, Television Business International. We sort of did a me- mental health think tank thing. And we were talking about the role of the production mum. I guess it's often the woman who's that person that people go to for emotional support. And, you know, it's an, unoffi- it's an unofficial role, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the most compassionate person in the team who ends up being that person for everybody. And I think there's something really valuable in that but it, it also who is then there for her for a start so who does she go to when it all becomes too much um and also it, it doesn't provide that level of um impartiality so if you have somebody that's part of your sort of day-to-day working environment are we are we really being in t- completely honest about how we're feeling are we, are we able to go and be 100% confidential or you know, 100% honest if it's if it's somebody that you then have to work with for the next two years or there's, there's yeah it's, I think there's we need to explore how that would work but it's definitely needed. And what's been the the biggest career lesson you've learned if you can kind of um, encapsulate it? <laughs> be authentic. Be yourself. You know, I I guess that's the problem, isn't it, with the industry expect. Or we feel that we have to be performing at a certain level. Um, and I have suffered from exhaustion and burnout in the past from trying to get to that level. And, I, and I'm not really prepared to do that anymore. So I think just being myself is the most important thing. That's, yeah, just being really honest about that, doing the things, doing the things that I love. Is there a film that you've seen recently, uh, can be an old or new release by a women director that you think is undervalued and that you think more people should have seen? I think the thing that I watched, this, she probably isn't undervalued at all, I think she's very valued, but the thing that impacted me most recently was the series by Ava DuVernay on Netflix. Mm-hmm. When They See Us, yeah. 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 I mean, that just, that was so, so hard-hitting and, and I, I can't remember feeling such a mix a mix of emotions. Every episode drew out something completely different in me from from one thing. It just it, it was incredible. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. That's it's been so lovely to meet you. <laughs> you too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you particularly enjoyed this one, may I also recommend my interview with Flor Coscur, who works in talent development at the Scottish Documentary Institute. 
as well as my interview with Ellen Evans, a rising star in the documentary filmmaking scene. You can let me know what you think of the podcast via an iTunes review or tweet me at Stone Cold Fox. That's Stone with an E, Cold with an E, and Fox with an X. Have a great week. Bye.